Knowledge, what it means for text, reader, activity, and context. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm a former fourth grade teacher and instructional coach, a current elementary literacy coordinator for a local school district. I also hold a PhD in curriculum and instruction that specialized in literacy and leadership from Utah State University. Welcome to the show. This show is all about bridging research to practice. If you're listening to this episode when it drops, we are at the cusp of a brand new school year in the fall of 2022. So whatever your context in teaching young children how to read, I wish you the best of luck. I wish you a fantastic year. And most importantly, I wish you knowledge in your quest to help your students become better readers. With the new school year, there is one change happening in the background of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. It might not make a huge difference on your end, on the listening side, but it does make a really big difference on my side, on the production side. I've brought on a co-producer. His name is Patrick Wells. I've known him for several years. I had the privilege to teach him in his elementary literacy methods course a few years back, and then we worked together in another context. And this year, he is a first-year, first-grade teacher starting out in the classroom, and, and he's joining Teaching Literacy Podcast to help with the editing and production of the show, uh, the things that I get bogged down in a lot and that keep me from producing episodes on a more consistent basis. So we're all grateful for Patrick because uh, my hope is that I'll be able to get some episodes more consistently out to you and uh, we can be able to hear from literacy experts on how we can be teaching people how to read better. So I'm, I'm excited. Welcome to the show, Patrick. So right now, Patrick's just working in the background, but I'm sure before too long, I'll be able to convince him to get a mic in front of him and, and we can hear from him as well. Other items of business, a great big thank you to those who have donated to the show, either through Venmo or through PayPal. Uh, you can do that Venmo on the business side of Venmo by at Teach Lit Podcast. Uh, you can also do it on the website if you go to About Your Host, and then there's a spot where you can uh, donate via securely via PayPal. And a great big thanks to those who have donated. It's, it's several hundred dollars out of pocket to run a show like this every year, and I'm grateful for those who are willing to help Help me do that. So with that, let's get to the show. I'm very excited about my two guests on this episode today. My guests are Dr. Courtney Hatton and Dr. Sarah Lupo. Dr. Courtney Hatton is an assistant professor of elementary literacy education in the School of Teaching and Learning at Illinois State University. And Dr. Hatton was a recipient of the 2019 International Literacy Association Timothy and Cynthia Shanahan Outstanding Dissertation Award. My other guest is Dr. Sarah Lupo. Dr. Sarah Lupo is an assistant professor in the middle, secondary, and math department at James Madison University, and she was named a Reading Hall of Fame Emerging Scholars Fellow, so both fantastic scholars in their own right. Today, we are talking about uh, reading comprehension and its relationship with knowledge and lots of the different variables that play into that and how we can think in more nuanced and sophisticated ways of supporting the readers in our context and understanding the text that they read. So a great big thanks to these guests for joining me on the show today. And without further ado, I bring you Dr. Courtney Hatton and Dr. Sarah Lupo.
Dr. Courtney Hatton and Dr. Sarah Lupo. Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thanks. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have both of you here on the show. We're talking about an article that you wrote in the Reading Research Quarterly's special double issue on the science of reading, and you titled it Rethinking the Role of Knowledge in the Literacy Classroom. Uh, Before we get too far in talking about knowledge, though, I want to get some background on both of you of um, your research interests, how how those became your research interests, and uh, maybe an overview of kind of projects that you're involved in right now? Yeah, I'd love to share. I'm Courtney Hatton. I'm an assistant professor of elementary literacy education at Illinois State University. I'm also a former elementary and middle school language arts and social studies teacher and earned my reading specialist degree from Johns Hopkins in 2012 and my PhD in educational psychology from the University of Maryland in 2018. Um, My research really centers on the intersection of knowledge and reading comprehension, both in thinking about knowledge activation as well as knowledge building, and thinking about doing both of these different processes in ways that are culturally responsive and acknowledging students' assets and and the things that they bring with them to a reading experience, while also thinking about ways to introduce new knowledge and new perspectives to students. And thinking about sort of how I got into this, I When I was a new teacher, I was sort of always told to do a KWL chart and activate students' prior knowledge and sort of met, was often met with frustration from students of thinking about like students who had little topic specific knowledge or a little interest in whatever we were about to read about. And then they would just sort of shut down or sort of disengage, or they would share lots of information that was either off topic or they would be inaccurate knowledge or misconceptions. And I was kind of like, okay, there has to be a a better way of going about this or additional ways or ways to tweak a KWL in order to make it more effective for my students. So I've been thinking about knowledge and knowledge activation in particular since I was a brand new teacher in 2006 and then sort of brought that into my research when I started my PhD program in 2012 and have really focused quite a bit on knowledge and how we can incorporate it into reading. That's wonderful. That mirrors my experience with KWO charts. So I'm excited to get into those a little bit later in the interview. So Dr. Lupo, why don't you give us a little bit of your background and research interests? Sure. So I was a teacher for 14 years before I went back to school and got my PhD and then became a professor. And I wore a lot of hats as a teacher. I was an ESL teacher at one point. I was an English language arts teacher. I was a literacy coach and a reading specialist as well. And I taught a lot of different grade levels. I'm a little bit odd. I've taught kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And I taught at a lot of different kinds of schools too. So I've actually taught at public charter and private schools. My last five years, I was at a public high school and I was working as a literacy coach and a reading specialist. And I got my master's and I just saw a lot of gaps in the research things that like we just didn't know yet, as well as like a lot of things that were in the research that hadn't made their way into schools. And it really got me interested in research in particular and wanting to help fill some of those gaps, but also help just bridge that research practice divide. I went back to school and I got my PhD at UVA and now I'm a professor and I teach graduate and undergraduate students and I still engage in my research. And my research is pretty broad. My overarching goal is really to help bridge that research practice divide and help translate really good research into things that are actionable in the classroom for teachers. And a lot of my research is around comprehension. Wonderful. So both very intelligent, very knowledgeable folks to have here on the show with us talking about 
comprehension and its relationship with knowledge. And uh, I feel that lately, knowledge has been a very hot topic in the role of comprehension. There's been in kind of public spheres, things like strategy instruction that's kind of gotten thrown under the bus in favor of knowledge building. What I, I really like is with your article, you're not pitting one sort of aspect of literacy against another aspect of literacy, but the article is just talking about, well, let's think about knowledge and how knowledge connects to literacy and comprehension within the classroom. So to start out with that, let's maybe just do a brief visit or revisit to the RAND model. You know, the RAND model was initially published in in 2002 by the, the RAND study group. And 20 years later, I still find when I'm talking with teachers or with undergraduates, the RAND model helps frame comprehension really nicely. And then there's other more you know, sophisticated or technical or nuanced areas we can get into. But just to think about it broadly, I found it to be very applicable. So can we start off with just a brief overview of the RAND model and why it still matters 20 years later? Sure. Happy to talk about that. The RAND model, as you mentioned, is a model of comprehension. So just clarifying that it is not meant to focus on like decoding or fluency, sort of these other aspects or components of reading. RAND defines reading comprehension, and I'm quoting here, as the process of simultaneously extracting and constructing meaning through interaction and involvement with written language. And within that, there is sort of this interaction between the reader, the text, and the task within a particular sociocultural context. I'll kind of delve a little bit into what each of those are in a way that centers knowledge. So when we're thinking about readers, readers do bring various types of background knowledge with them to their reading experience. So this can range from topic-specific knowledge or domain general knowledge, cultural knowledge, linguistic knowledge, strategic knowledge. You just mentioned strategies. So students' knowledge of those strategies is something that they can bring with them to a reading experience. And when we're thinking about text, text can vary in format. They can be narrative. They can have different expository text structures. And I know that you had Dr. Strong on here back in November of 2021. So I encourage everyone to to check that out if they haven't already. He talks about different text structures. Students would need to have knowledge of those text structures in order to be able to access those texts. But that's another thing to think about when we're thinking about text, as well as the content of those texts and the knowledge that those texts bring and give to students. And then we also can think about task. A task is a purpose for reading. Oftentimes, a task could include something like summarizing or even the task to do well on a test or to answer multiple choice questions. But if we're thinking about centering knowledge here, the task could be to be able to learn from the text. Then in that learning, maybe present that information to a peer or really think about a more authentic way of using what students are learning in order to do something with that information. And then that intersection of the reader, the text, and the task all happens within a sociocultural context. And the sociocultural context will include the social and cultural factors that might influence students' comprehension, such as a classroom community or interactions between peers. But a sociocultural context could also include students at home, literacy practices such as reading a recipe while cooking with a family member or reading a story before bed or reading social media. 
One thing that I like about the RAND model is that it does provide that space for considering both cognitive and sociocultural perspectives. Cognitive perspectives are what's happening in the brain of an individual learner, the mental processes that are occurring within an individual. So there is that thinking about what's happening with that reader at a particular time when they're interacting with a text. However, there's also this space of thinking about how the reader is interacting with peers, with the teachers, with authors, and understanding and acknowledging that reading is a social practice so that we should be having these conversations and communication, not only with ourselves, but also with the people and the communities around us. I like the RAND model for those reasons that you just mentioned. It really isn't meant to be the end-all be-all. It's meant to be a broad paradigm or a broad umbrella where there's multiple areas within it to look at instruction. So thinking about task and reader and text and all of that's going to be embedded within a larger sociocultural context allows us to have different filters or different lenses when we're thinking about reading comprehension and the RAND report, it's free, so I'll link to it in the show notes if anyone wants some, some great reading, but they have a really great figure that helps display all this very concisely. I will actually add yeah. one quick thing, if you don't mind. Yeah, please. One thing that I like about the RAND model is that as a teacher, I can control two of the aspects. So while I can't control what my readers bring to any one given situation, and I can't really change the sociocultural context of my students' lives or school, I can create a really good classroom environment that I think adds to that sociocultural context. But I can choose my texts and I can choose my activities. And so to me, it's very uplifting as a teacher. Oftentimes we approach comprehension and we think, oh, but students can't and it's so hard. And I look at the Rambo and I think, but I can control most of this. I can make sure that this interaction is good for my students because I can control most of it. And over time, if I do a really good job with my texts and my activities, and I've thought about my sociocultural context, what my students actually bring to the reading experience will actually be more over time. And so I will improve that reader over time. That's what I find really just uplifting about the RAND model. Yeah, task and text. We do have a lot of control over that in the classroom for instruction. I appreciate that insight, Dr. Lupo. Thinking ahead, in the last decade, there's been a rise of a new type of curriculum that hasn't really been systematically used beforehand. It's a knowledge building curriculum. Maybe you're familiar with some of them out there, but those have largely become popular due to the writings of E.D. Hirsch and thinking about what he calls the knowledge gap. Can you talk to us about the rise of these knowledge building curricula and how you might reframe our thinking around a knowledge-based curriculum? Yeah, so there has been this rise, as you mentioned, in knowledge building curricula. I think that this has happened as a way to provide an alternative to what might be labeled as less effective curricula. And that is a speculative statement. We don't actually know that this isn't something that's been empirically tested, at least that I know about. So thinking about the instruction that we we do now needs to change. And so here's an alternative. And I think that this rise in knowledge building curricula really does come from a lot of journalists and media who have then emphasized a knowledge building approach and, and have popularized that in written books and things like that about knowledge building. There is some more recent empirical grounding for knowledge building curricula. Um, there's some really great recent work by Dr. Jimmy Kim at Harvard and Dr. Sonia Cable at Florida State that looks at a knowledge building approach with students and with literacy instruction in particular. So what I would have to say about a knowledge building approach is that 
it does have the potential to positively influence students' reading and to positively influence students' knowledge building as well. Um, whether or not that be like science or social studies or math or art. But I do think that there are some things that need to be entered into this conversation and some potential concerns with just sort of delving right into knowledge building without thinking a little bit more broadly about what's happening. And just because something is different or new doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. So we do need more empirical support for this. But one of the bigger things that I think is missing from the conversation is thinking about whose knowledge is being centered and the texts that are being used within the knowledge building curricula that are out there. And then also thinking about local contexts and local cultures and how they're being considered as part of this. Um, so there was a very recent study that was published in 2022, and I might botch the name here, so I do apologize, but it's Bridgel et al. 2022 that is titled Overwhelming Whiteness, a Critical Analysis of Race and Scripted Reading Curriculum. And what that study shows is that they look at one of the very popular knowledge building curricula that are out there and shows that this curriculum is centering whiteness in terms of the text that they're using, the authors, the characters, the situations, the instructional techniques and instructional supports that are being used. And I think that that is problematic because if we are going to make this shift, we really need to think about what texts are being in front of students, whose knowledge is being centered here. An alternative to this is thinking about ways of centering local communities and local ways of thinking while simultaneously introducing students to new knowledge and new perspectives. This could either happen by developing your own knowledge building curriculum, or if you are using a knowledge building curriculum out there, I would encourage teachers to consider alternative or additional texts that they could bring in to their curriculum that would tie in local interests and local ways of thinking, and especially texts that are not just about historically marginalized people, but that are written by and for historically marginalized communities to provide students with access to different perspectives or to perspectives that mirror their own experiences. In the spirit of Dr. Bishop's work with providing students with windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors, and I do want to say that there has been a lot of really great work that's been done, especially at the secondary level of like the disrupt text movement of trying to make sure that we're providing students with access to texts that don't center whiteness. But I think we can do that even more with elementary grades and something that really needs to be part of the conversation when we're thinking about knowledge building and infusing knowledge building into literacy instruction. And that obviously connects in really well with the RAND model of text, task, reader embedded within a sociocultural context. The content of the text absolutely does matter in thinking about how our students are going to respond to it and how we can have instruction. So, you know, thinking about reframing what we mean by knowledge or, or whose knowledge, I think, is an important consideration. And that's in E.D. Hirsch's writing. He talks about what he calls the knowledge gap and one, I guess, pragmatic application of that is the famous Hart and Risley study from 1995 and how that's been commonly responded to by teachers in classrooms. Folks out there listening might not have the citation memorized, but I can almost guarantee that they've heard of this study. So can we get a brief overview of the Hart and Risley study and sort of its common implications for teachers now and how you might reframe that? Sure. Happy to, to chime in here. 
so Hart and Risley examined how many words that children heard at home and then the impact on that number of words on their language later on. And they found that children from poverty, and they measured that by families who are on welfare, heard significantly fewer words than other children, which had a significant impact on their vocabulary knowledge later on. And, you know, the common implication from this is that kids from poverty have less knowledge, and therefore we need to fill them up with all this knowledge so that they can read well. I'd say that this is a really naive understanding, and we need to be careful about the sort of black and white takeaway from this particular study. It doesn't really take into account what we know about comprehension processes, and I don't think it accurately depicts the role of knowledge. Everybody has knowledge. (laughs) There's no such thing as like readers have knowledge or don't have knowledge. This whole idea of low knowledge doesn't quite make sense. Like we all have knowledge. We just might not have that particular set of knowledge that folks were looking at. And you always use what you know to make sense of a text. Another great article is by McCarthy and McNamara. And they point out in their 2021 article that the depth, the specificity, the breadth, and the accuracy of knowledge matters. And that is true. But it'd be inaccurate to say that readers just don't have knowledge and therefore can't understand a text. And I have heard that phrase said a few times, especially in reference to this particular study. So I think we have to be careful by jumping down there. It may lead teachers to inadvertently avoid activating knowledge for their readers that they believe have quote unquote, like low knowledge, whatever that might mean. Instead, we want to remember that all of our readers have knowledge and that we want to always activate knowledge for readers so that they can use what they do know to make sense of a text because you can't not use your knowledge, right? Everybody has something that they know. We also want to define knowledge more broadly and remember that content knowledge is not the only kind of knowledge that was more heavily centered in the kind of things they were measuring in that particular study. The link between knowledge and comprehension is one of the most consistent findings of comprehension research. And so what I like in the article is even though we can be critiquing how knowledge is commonly thought about and trying to reframe it, it's not an advocate for saying knowledge doesn't matter. It's actually quite the opposite. Knowledge completely matters but maybe just in a slightly different way than, than what we're used to. And so for perhaps a teacher that inadvertently you know, waters down the content because a student has a different fund of knowledge than another student might not be actually the most effective way, whereas more of being responsive to the student or trying to scaffold up might be you know, a more appropriate response to that type of interaction. I really like in the article, you talk about the role of knowledge as something that is activated, integrated and then revised throughout the reading process. And so it's not just background knowledge, you know, what they bring to the table initially that matters, but it's how what they have is activated, how we provide more knowledge, integrating it within and how we revise it throughout, which I really like that summation. Can you expand on what you mean by that a little bit deeper? Yes, absolutely. So knowledge activation is when we're bringing to mind what readers already know relative to an experience idea or a topic. And a misconception about knowledge activation is that it doesn't only need to happen before reading. I think a lot of times we're like, oh, knowledge activation, we're just going to do it before reading. But actually it can happen during and after reading as well. And Sarah and I, as well as my former advisor, Dr. Patricia Alexander, are currently working on a literature review on knowledge activation. So hopefully that will come out soon. We're on our second revision. Fingers crossed that that gets out there. But what we found is that during reading also has a really positive 
effect on students' reading comprehension. So it's important to not only activate knowledge before, but also during, and that can help students with understanding what they're reading. What we've also found, just sort of like some spoiler alerts for that study, is that typically a teacher support of knowledge activation does have a positive influence on students' comprehension with a couple of caveats. And that is that it's typically trickier to activate students' knowledge with younger students. And there's just very little research on that. So out of all of the studies that we have looked at, only two looked at knowledge activation with first or second grade students or kindergarten students. So we just don't know a lot about knowledge activation with our youngest learners. Also, activating misconceptions does not help comprehension or support comprehension. When we are doing knowledge activation, we need to be really careful about whether or not we think that students have these really deep-seated misconceptions and then activate knowledge in different ways if that is the case. So a lot of knowledge activation, but that's where I've been spending a lot of my time. Knowledge integration is extending what students know by combining text-based information with their prior knowledge and then assimilating new information into their schemas. Knowledge revision is when we adjust what we know or what students know based off of what we've read or what they have read. A lot of the knowledge revision work has been done specifically within science texts or with science context. So thinking about how we can adjust our misconceptions about climate change or about Newton's law of motion, or maybe even more recently with thinking about misconceptions about COVID. So thinking about these scientific misconceptions that people have and then revising students' knowledge or people's knowledge with that. However, I do think that knowledge revision can also be possible and that there's evidence of this with social studies and our other types of content. For example, we could think about revising students' knowledge of the Columbus story of Columbus is this hero, someone who discovered America, and then help students by revising their knowledge, by giving them texts that help them understand Indigenous perspectives, what was going on with Indigenous communities at that time, and understanding that they really have existed on what's currently considered to be United States soil long before Europeans came and colonized the land. This kind of goes back to this idea or this question of whose knowledge is then being centered, and then how are we supporting students in the knowledge revision process and and in shifting and adjusting their knowledge as they're engaging with text. I've always found that to be interesting, the, you know, background knowledge of turning on a computer, like, oh, it's activated. Okay, (laughs) we can move on with our instruction. Or sometimes a, almost a, I guess I wouldn't say apathetic, but almost, I guess, agnostic isn't the right term either, but not even thinking about the content that's in the text as that being the weight of the barbell, so to speak. And we might be looking at text structure and we might be looking at theme or main idea, but the purpose of those is actually to leverage meaning, to build knowledge. And so I like that activation, integration, revision process, because I think that is a much more accurate kind of thinking of it. I've read a lot of Walter Kinch's stuff, construction integration, and, and um, you know, some of the newer text processing stuff is what I'm interested in. And that's what I see very much happening with the comprehension process cognitively. Yes, the knowledge matters, but it matters before during and after. And the during and after are super critical components of what comprehension really is. So I appreciate that. 
In thinking about knowledge, we've kind of been a little existential already in talking about knowledge, but just to get a bit more pragmatic of thinking about what even is knowledge, in the article, you outlined several different types of the types of knowledge that uh, that can be provided through text and that students need to have and that we have also as adults. So what types of knowledge are there to have and how is that supported by learning through texts? Yeah, so we often think of knowledge as content knowledge, and in particular, knowing facts about science and social studies. That's what most people, I think, come to mind when they think about knowledge. But a lot of researchers, including Alexander and colleagues, have actually found that there are like 27 different kinds of knowledge. And of course, some of these kinds of knowledge overlap with each other. So they're not definitely 27 unique kinds of knowledge. One kind of knowledge that I think is often overlooked in the literacy classroom is cultural knowledge, and that's knowledge of cultural practices of a group of people. This is a really rich form of knowledge that I really think could be activated and leveraged in the classroom to help students make sense of texts. I also think we could have students share their cultural knowledge to help build knowledge with other students in the classroom. So for example, when I was a reading specialist, um, we had a lot of refugees at the school that I worked at, and I had a student from Iraq, and we were reading a current events article that was about the Iraq war at the time, that was current events, and the student stopped us several times and shared just some really interesting and relevant knowledge about the Iraqi culture that we did not know, and it was really clear from that she had a really different understanding of the text than we did, and that knowledge that she had shaped that, but also she helped helped shaped our understanding of the text by sharing this relevant knowledge with us as we read. And I think that everyone in that class really took away a different understanding. So I really think that cultural knowledge is often overlooked and we could be bringing that up more in the classroom. Another type of knowledge that I think is overlooked is linguistic knowledge. Um, And this is knowledge of another language or and structure of that language. I think the United States is the only country in the world where we view the knowledge of another language other than English as a deficit. And I'm sometimes sad when I hear how language learners are talked about in schools. I lived abroad for a long time and I traveled a lot and people would be like, you only speak English? Like, what's wrong with you? And I went to other countries. And so here we're like, oh, you know more than one language. You're not as good as everybody else. I think we need to treat that as a strength, not a deficit in our schools. Um, and so one, one thing that I think about with language learners is that a lot of the language learners that I've worked with in the U.S. do a lot of paraphrasing. They're often doing a lot of translation for relatives who maybe don't speak English. And that's an amazing literacy skill that I think we could be leveraging in the classroom when we're talking about paraphrasing. That's a really hard thing to do. And it's something people struggle with. And it's something that they're already doing in a pretty regular and consistent basis. And I think that we could help them use that skill that they already have and show them how we can do that with text. Another kind of knowledge that I think uh, would be great to, to bring into the literacy block is principled knowledge. And that's how various information is connected to each other. So for example, I was working with a group of fourth graders and they were learning about plant adaptations in their science class. And in social studies, they were learning about the colony of Jamestown. And they were able to draw connections between the plants that the Jamestown colonists were having trouble growing and plant adaptations and why they might've had trouble growing these crops from England here in America to what they were learning in their science unit. And I thought that was really neat. Being able to make those connections is really important and strengthens both of those knowledge things that they were trying to learn in these two subjects. There's also other types of knowledge that we mentioned in the article. I won't go into detail, but conditional knowledge is important and multiple text use knowledge is important, multimodal knowledge, multimodal text knowledge. So there's there's a, a number of different kinds of knowledge that I think we could be giving more attention to. I love that perspective of different types of knowledge, of not knowledge is just 
specifically content of how many facts can a student list off about X, Y, or Z, but thinking about other types of knowledge that, that mattered as well, like principled knowledge, strategic knowledge. You know, you did a great job talking about linguistic knowledge, Dr. Lupos. Those matter within text and those can be, you know, it's a two-way street. Those can be conveyed within text, but they can also be used to help leverage meaning from text as well, uh, which I think is a pretty powerful way of thinking about knowledge. So we've, we've kind of spent time off in the stratosphere with knowledge. I want to go a little bit more focused in thinking specifically of what this means for practice. And Dr. Hatton, you already mentioned KWL charts. I think those are very common. What do you typically see with how KWL charts are used? And how might that practice be shifted to better support knowledge building practices? I'd love to talk about KWL charts. <laughs> I had very similar experiences to both of you as a teacher. I felt frustrated by them. I felt like the things my students brought up were not things that were related to the text and they didn't seem to know what I needed them to know. And like, I just felt very frustrated by them. So I actually did a study to compare KWL charts to explicitly building relevant knowledge prior to reading, thinking that I could show how useless KWL charts were. And I was pretty surprised to learn that the KWL charts were actually more effective than building explicit knowledge prior to reading. Um, and th that was more effective for everybody. So that, that held true for all different kinds of readers. 35% of the students in that study were language learners, and they had the highest gains in the KWL group than anybody else. And so it was super effective for them. Students who had read below grade level, according to a standardized reading assessment, benefited from the KWLs. All the students benefited from them much more. And so I really spent a lot of time going back and looking through at the notes I had taken on how the teachers had implemented the KWLs to figure out, like, why was this so good for students? Why did this help so much? And why was it so much better than explicitly building this knowledge prior um, and I realized there were some instructional moves that teachers did that I think really helped the students in that K2L group. And so one of the things that they did was if students didn't know anything about a topic, instead of just getting frustrated and being like, whatever, we're just going to read the article, they looked for a different topic in the article to find something that students did know. So for example, students were reading an article that compared immigrant, these are ninth graders, compared immigration policies in present day Syria, this is during the Syrian refugee um, issue that we're having here in the U.S. with the Holocaust. And the teacher asked students what they knew about Syria, and they did not know very much about Syria. So she's like, well, what do you know about the Holocaust? And they knew tons of information about the Holocaust. So she was able to find information that they knew to help them make sense of that text. Another thing that I saw teachers do was to go broader. Another teacher with students were reading an article about the country of Guinea in Africa. And she asked what they knew about Guinea, which was nothing. <laughs> it was very, very little. She's like, well, what do you know about Africa? And the information they knew about Africa was actually really relevant to what they were reading. And so that going broader, she was able to find what they did know and help them use that to make sense of the text. And so I think that part of what was happening was that the teachers were approaching all of their students as having knowledge. And it was just a matter of, I'm going to keep going until I find it and help you bring that out. It was very discussion-based as well. And so I think that that's why it was so effective. Rather than just saying, well, these are low-knowledge students. They didn't know anything. I'm going to move on. This KWL didn't work. They just, they kept going. And I thought it was really great. 
Um, and so really they also drew from different kinds of knowledge too. So it wasn't just looking at their content knowledge. They did draw from their personal knowledge. So another text they're reading about allergies, you know, the students shared personal experiences with allergies as they were reading that text to help them understand it. So by broadening our view and coming to students with the idea that they all have knowledge, I think we can, I think K2L charts can actually be used quite effectively to activate knowledge. I like that thinking of using the KWO chart related knowledge or, you know, kind of what superordinate category, how can I tap into something that they do know in order to help bridge it to there, at least as a starting point. Um, maybe I'm going to go off script and ask a follow-up question. I found in my class that sometimes students struggled with the want to know part, right? The W part of that of saying, well, I might know a few things, but I don't know what I want to know, or it would be that they might list some things they want to know, but then that isn't actually covered by the text or by the text selection, you know, the set of text we were using. Do you have any insights on the, the W part? Yeah, there were some great things that happened in the study because I had similar experiences too. And the teachers provided a lot of guidance to the students and a lot of feedback. And I think that's what was really helpful. For example, students would ask questions that just didn't really have anything to do with the text. And the teacher would reframe the question in a way we're taking the spirit of what students were saying and helping them use that to make, you know, something that they would actually find in the article. Or if it was something that they, she knew they wouldn't find, she'd help them actually broaden their question so that it would be something they could look for. And I think that's a really important thing that we have to remember is that we're helping our students set a purpose for reading, but we're not just like letting them go do it on their own. It's that feedback and that guidance from us that helps them set that really good purpose. And so it has to be an interactive process like that. I've seen a lot of just hand everyone a KWL chart and they'll just do it on their own. When I went back and really read Google's seminal article on KWL charts and how they're supposed to be used, that is not how it was intended as a strategy. It was intended as a discussion strategy with lots of teacher guidance and facilitation on those heavy cognitive thinking processes, um, like how to ask questions that we can then try to answer in a text. And so I think that's really the key there. That's very insightful. I'm thinking like principles of gradual release that, you know, maybe I could have done better with my students by me modeling a little bit more of um, this is how I would think about what types of things I would want to learn. And then over time doing perhaps more guided practice, um, but where it's not just a worksheet, like, okay, hey, go fill that out, check. All right, we've done our knowledge thing. Let's move on. But uh, I think that's really powerful. And I'm also just now realizing that the KWL really mirrors very, very nicely the activation, integration, and revision. Each one of those, the KW and L kind of fill all those in nicely. So that can be a very kind of pragmatic way of thinking about uh, the more broad aspects of, of the role of comprehension. That's fantastic. Uh, another one that I think is very commonly used and I think could deserve some good discussion. Oh yeah. Did you want to chip in? Yeah, I would. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't yeah. mean to interrupt. No, you. you're just fine. Yeah. You're, you're good. Um, I, so just one other thing to think about is that there actually has been very little research on KWL charts. And so Sarah has done a study. I have also done a study and had very different findings, but it wasn't with a heavily discussion-based format. It was with fifth and sixth grade students where they really were doing this more internally or like by themselves of what do I know, what don't I know, and, or what the K, what do I know, and then have I learned and um, that was not effective for their reading comprehension. It's actually the least effective with several strategies that they did. Dr. Kaystall did a study with second grade students, and she found that KWL was several instructions. So I think it's just really important to think about 
what grade level, and then also what teacher scaffolds are part of that. Just like Sarah was mentioning, it's really about how is the teacher supporting students and getting at what their knowledge is rather than just saying like, oh, KWLs are always great or KWLs are never great. Um, but thinking about the context of when might it be more appropriate, when might it be less appropriate, and then that's su the support that teachers are giving instead of just kind of viewing it from like a black and white perspective. Absolutely. And I'm really glad you touched on that because with research, it's a consensus over time that's built. And so, you know, here we have a great example of multiple studies showing slightly different things or more effectively used in one situation than another. And I think about when there's a gap like that of going back to what's your model or what's your purpose. Like when we talked about the RAND's definition of comprehension, it talks about the extraction of text details the uh, construction of a mental model, and that's through interaction with the text. And so I tend to think that, okay, if I'm using a KWL chart that's helping my students extract, construct a mental model, and we're doing that through interaction with the text, that's probably going to be a more effective use of a KWL than a practice where we're not using it to build a mental model. We're not using it to extract details from the text, and we're not using it in a way that interacts with the text. Sometimes I think where there's research gaps like that, having a broader model to kind of contrast it with can be a way to help decide, well, is this going to be effective or is it not? Another practice that's really popular that I think uh, deserves some consideration is visual representations. So we're thinking graphic organizers here, and you both argue that graphic organizers of visual representations are a great way to support activation, integration, revision of knowledge. What practices can we be using with graphic organizers to help support the meaning-making process? Yeah, so when we were talking about that, we actually weren't specifically focusing graphic organizers. We're thinking more about visual representations and what the research shows with visual representations and knowledge activation are more things like concept maps. I love concept maps in terms of helping students organize information. Um, and what I like about them is that you can give students like a number of different concepts and subconcepts and then help them try to figure out how they're related to each other, kind of back to that idea of principal knowledge. How are things connecting to each other? And it can help cue students to important texts to pay attention to during reading. So before reading, I have all these different ideas or vocabulary words that represent central concepts. And then I'm trying to figure out how they connect to each other. And then during reading and after reading, I'm adapting and adjusting my concept map. I think that can be really useful and helpful for students. So an example of that is giving them um, concepts like Milky Way, Galaxy, Sun, Star, Earth, Mars, Planets, and then helping them see that like Milky Way is a type of galaxy and a sun is a star and Earth and Mars are both planets that are in the Milky Way galaxy. So seeing how all of these different things are connected to each other. And what I will say is that there is some research that shows that with students who have lower levels of topic specific knowledge or who are just younger, that providing them with more structure in their concept maps can be useful. So instead of just giving them all the words and having them create their own concept map, it can be helpful for you to, as a teacher, think about, okay, here are some circles and here are some lines that are going to the circles. Now put the words into those different circles and think about how they're related to each other. And that structure can be a little bit more facilitative for students rather than giving them a free-for-all, especially for students who have low, again, topic-specific knowledge, if you're not doing stuff to sort of build on their other resources or other funds of knowledge too. 
I think that's really powerful because, you know, in thinking about more content knowledge, it's very hierarchical and very relational. Helping students kind of map out what might be slushy in their head and something a little bit more structured can definitely help frame a purpose for reading a text. You also mentioned a whole slew of other practices that are effective as well. Things like pre-reading questions, things like uh, small or whole group discussion, relational reasoning, refutation texts. We don't necessarily have time to go into all of those very deeply, but are there any others that either of you wanted to comment on uh, specifically? I would like to talk a little bit about my work with relational reasoning in particular, because this is something that came out of my academic family. My advisor, Dr. Alexander, sort of came up with this idea. At this point, it was like about 10 years ago. And um, what relational reasoning is, is this ability to identify patterns within any ideas or streams of information or texts that students might be engaging with. And so there are these four different forms or versions of relational reasoning that you could then use questions related to each of those forms to then prompt students thinking about text. So some of these will be really familiar and some of them might be like, oh, I don't really understand what that is. But analogies are the most common form of relational reasoning. So these are understanding similarities. And this is something that teachers do all the time of like, how does this relate to what I already know? How does this text content relate back to what I think I know or relate back to my life. And then anomalies are discrepancies. So this is helping or supporting students to think about what in the text might be unusual or unexpected. And I think that questions like those can really help students with the knowledge integration and knowledge revision process of like, oh, I didn't realize that or that isn't something that I was anticipating. And then antinomous reasoning is the idea of exclusivity. And I think it's the one that might be most challenging to understand, but it's what doesn't fit with what I think I already know or what couldn't be true given what I know about the world. So an example for this, I did a study where I had fifth and sixth grade students read texts about ancient Rome. And what they were able to come up with in response to an antinomous reasoning question was that, well, gladiators don't exist today and we don't have people fight to the death in a coliseum. But what we do have is sports stadiums and we have athletes who are challenging each other and competing against one another. And so they were able to see both similarities and those analogies, but then they were also able to say like, oh, well, in my world today, I wouldn't see gladiators fighting to the death in my hometown or in my reality. And then the final form of relational reasoning are antitheses. So understanding how what's in the text might be opposite of what I think I already know. And I think here it's important with all four of these forms to think about not only the knowledge that I learned in school, but also my experiences, my cultural knowledge, my linguistic knowledge. How does this relate to all of those different types of knowledge, not only the knowledge that I've learned in school and my content area knowledge? I think that's fantastic, Dr. Hatton. Dr. Lupo, are there any of those other practices that you wanted to comment on? I think discussion. It's something that we're not quite doing enough in schools. Um, I think it's very time consuming. And so we often are like, oh, I'm just going to skip that so I can move on. I would definitely highlight discussions. I also really love anticipation guides. And I just think my students love them too. And <laughs> I think it's a great way to get students kind of thinking about things before and after reading. Um I think we call them like pre-reading questions, but they're more statements that you decide if you agree or disagree with. And it can just get students really engaged and excited as well as thinking about what they know and try to help connect that to what they're learning. 
powerful. You know, discussion is one that comes up again and again and again and again. And I think soon I want to see if I can get Dr. Dan Reynolds back on the show to talk about some of his work around contingency-based scaffolds. I'm not sure if either of you are familiar with that, but I really like his kind of take on it of how a teacher can interact in a discussion in a way that's going to be responsive to students in the moment to shift and help to sort of guide comprehension throughout instruction. So much potential for discussion because that's where language can happen around the text. Very powerful. And, And anticipation guides, that's one I've actually not done a ton with before in the past, but uh, maybe I anticipate <laughs> trying those a little bit more. Um, one thing I will say, I've been to a more than one presentation now that Dan has done on that topic. And one thing that's come up is just how hard it is to train teachers t- to ask those really good questions. Cause it, it really does have to be in the moment, assessing the student, thinking about the text, thinking about, you know, the, what they need in that moment. It's tricky, but I think it's really important. I think it's something we hone over time, but I train pre service teachers. And I always think about how do we do that? And that's a hard one. It is. It is very hard. And expertise certainly plays into it. But I think at the very least, kind of the way he frames it is a step, I think, for teachers in the right direction to say, oh, it's not just we're going to talk about this text, you know, for the next 15 or 20 minutes. But what's my role as the teacher? How do I respond to students rather than just kind of, well, that's a great idea. Now, what do you think, Charlie, you know, being able to scaffold the conversation a bit yeah. a bit better so yeah sure. it's huge send them an email about that so you know just curious you know, we've been talking about knowledge and there's teachers that have listened to this and have probably said well I'm really curious on how can I make reading instruction more knowledge centered to my classroom and so how would you recommend to make knowledge for a teacher who's interested on how they can make their instruction more knowledge centered I love this question because I actually love building content knowledge. And in particular, I like building science and social studies knowledge in the classroom, especially the elementary classroom where I feel like we're just, you know, we've taken up so much time for literacy that we just don't have as much time for science and social studies as we used to. So I just don't think we're doing enough of that. So I'm constantly encouraging teachers to actually bring more science and social studies into the literacy block. In fact, I wrote a book about it. And so if you're interested in that, it's called Teaching Disciplinary Literacy in K through Six, Infusing Content with Reading, Writing, and Language. And it's available on Amazon. And in that book, we talk about just how we can bring science and social studies into the literacy block and math to help make literacy engaging and interesting and purposeful for students. And just to be clear, I don't think that should be all of literacy instruction. I love really good fiction and um, literature, and I think that has a great place too. So I would encourage teachers to do this though, from a strength-based perspective, rather than a filling students up as knowledge vessels perspective. So rather than like, oh, I got to cram a bunch of science and social studies knowledge in, I'm going to do this during literacy, instead thinking about how I'm going to activate their knowledge to help their learning about this. Connecting to local contexts, I think is really important here as well. And helping students just really integrate what they're reading about these different topics with the things that they already know. And so some techniques that I love that kind of I think can accompany this bringing science and social studies into literacy is like a pre-post journal. Have students think about what they know about a prompt prior to reading, read the text, and then go back and add to it. That really helps with that knowledge integration piece too. Again, anticipation guides. I love that. And just lots of really rich discussions, stop and think and talk and share with a partner and really good, thoughtful questions to help students really process what they're learning. 
Thanks for reminding me about your book. I'd forgotten. I, it's a pretty recent book, right? Wasn't it just published in like the last few months? Uh, in September it came out, yeah. In September. Okay, so yeah, six months ago. I remember seeing that. That's what I might have to go and, and purchase a copy. That sounds, I'll that sounds great. Her yeah. book. I use it with both undergrad and master's students and they all love it. So definitely recommend checking it out. Okay, that's wonderful. I'm always game for a good book recommendation. Dr. Hatton, what would you recommend for a teacher who wants to make their instruction a little bit more knowledge-based within the classroom? Yeah, I think Sarah mentioned several important ideas and things to think about. I really do think, though, the idea of really centering students' assets and students' strengths as part of this process is really important. And I'm happy to talk a little bit about some of the work that I'm doing now that kind of helps do that. Would that be okay? Yeah, that'd be Um, great. (laughs) Great. Uh, So some of the work that I've been doing now more recently is working with first grade teachers and their students and helping them integrate social studies content into their literacy instruction. And in this particular context, this is predominantly white students in a rural setting who come from a low income community. And what we're trying to aim to do there is trying to get them to think about what a community is in different ways. And so they're doing a six week long unit where in the first part of the unit, they're really thinking about their own community. So what is my local community like? What do I know about my local community? Who are the people? What jobs are here? What do my parents do? What do my other caregivers do? My cousins? Trying to think through what are the assets of my local community and understanding the social studies content of community. And then in the second half, we're helping students and supporting them in understanding different types of communities. So communities from around the world, understanding urban context, rural context, suburban context, understanding what communities might be like in other countries and other continents, really trying to do this work of leveraging what students know about their own community and then building their knowledge of new perspectives, new ways of thinking, new ways of being, and then doing that in a way that, uh, again, can integrate social studies knowledge into literacy, but in a setting where the teachers actually don't have a block of time to teach social studies, they don't have a social studies curriculum, so it's finding ways of at least being able to help them do something with social studies content and integrating that into literacy instruction in culturally responsive ways and ways that support what students know and leverage what they know, but also exposing them to new ideas, new ways of thinking. I love that. I think that's fantastic and sounds like a great way to drive forward sort of this false dichotomy between knowledge and comprehension, but how do we do both better? Maybe my biggest takeaway from thinking about how teachers can make their reading instruction more knowledge-centered is if you're teaching reading, you have texts and those texts are reflecting types of knowledge. And if you have students, uh, those students have knowledge and you don't necessarily need one of the knowledge building curriculum to go and build knowledge with your students, but you're trying to think about the interaction between those two things. And through this episode, I've learned thinking about it as how can I step sideways to find where I can tap into their knowledge at what's relational or how can I maybe step up to a broader category and kind of thinking about those two things to initially at least to find, you know, where their knowledge is at and then pulling it more towards the text. And with that integration and revision process of being able to help actually build new knowledge, um, that's really powerful. So 
thanks to both of you, Dr. Courtney Hatton and Dr. Sarah Lupo for joining me on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Final question for each of you, what makes a good teacher? Well, so many things, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I spent a lot of time coaching teachers and I love that. And I feel like I learned so much from getting to do that work alongside teachers. And one thing I'd say that I've learned is the really big difference between a, a really strong teacher and a mediocre, even a poor teacher is how they approach and what they do with their mistakes. A really good teacher takes those mistakes and looks at what they can do to help make things better. If a lesson didn't go well, instead of blaming the students, oh, they didn't know things, they're not good readers, they don't, their parents aren't training them right. My principal's forcing me to use this terrible curriculum and I hate that. And they instead take it on themselves and like, what can I do better? Like, this is the situation. I've got this curriculum. I have these particular students. I have this principal who's asking me to do these particular things. What can I do if that lesson didn't go well? And I think that's really the biggest difference between a strong teacher and a weaker teacher is what we do with our mistakes. Dr. Hatton. That's a great answer, Sarah. I would add on to that, that really considering students from an asset-based perspective, that this might be the thing that I just keep coming back to throughout this episode, but just really making sure that we're acknowledging students' strengths and not thinking about them as being these empty vessels waiting to be filled, but instead understanding that students have a lot to bring to the table, that they're real living, breathing people who have wonderful, fun personalities and experiences. And I think really great teachers see the assets that each students bring and get to know the communities and the cultures in which they are living and working and building relationships with students, with families, and with those communities. Wonderful. Dr. Courtney Hatt and Dr. Sarah Lupo, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thanks for having us. Dr. Courtney Hatton and Dr. Sarah Lupo for joining me on the show. Uh, I loved their article when I read it, and I, I've, I really enjoyed the conversation that we had. I've got two quick takeaways uh, from my conversation with them, and the first one has to do with, with the nature of comprehension. There's a lot of different models out there, and I've talked about some of those models on the podcast, things like the simple view of reading and things like the reading rope, and uh, I love those models. I, I need to be transparent with that. I, I think they are great, fantastic models. But sometimes when we're talking specifically about comprehension, there are some other models that I think help shed light on how we can be good instructors of of literacy and of reading comprehension. And one of those we talked about on the show today, and that is the RAND model. And it's 20 years old, but it's still kicking and it's still going strong. And I find when I'm talking with people about reading comprehension, that is one really efficient way to help categorize a lot of the broad variables that, that, that go into understanding what we read. There, there is a reader and the assets that, that that reader brings to the text. There is a text, which is the item that is meant to be comprehended. There is an activity or a task, which is the reason for reading, which is a huge deal. And I've talked about that on the episode with uh, Dr. Kit Moore and Dr. Eric Moore. And then all of that is embedded with a larger sociocultural context. And that can be just within the classroom climate of, of, of that specific classroom or the school, and then obviously larger social uh, and political contexts as well. And so those become knobs or variables that we can sort of try to tweak and adjust. And I really like how Dr. Uh, Sarah Lupo explained that 
uh, a lot of those are, are within our purview. We can curate the texts that provide opportunities for our students to become better readers. And we can also select the activity, which, you know, in the classroom, for me, I view that as instruction. We get to design the instruction. And we also get to know and influence our readers over time and the scope we have with them. So there is, there's quite a bit of that model that we can control. And if we focus on what we can control, we can help develop better readers. What I also like about the RAND report is the, the definition that Dr. Courtney Hatton explained, where reading comprehension, it's, it's extracting text details and it's being able to construct a mental model with them. And, and we're doing that through interaction with the text. And that's another thing when I talk with teachers about, well, how do I know if what I'm doing is reading comprehension instruction or not reading comprehension instruction? That's the definition that I usually go back to. I ask, are you actively modeling and showing and working with your students to pull specific details, specific important parts from the text. And that could be like in one specific spot of the text, or it can be across the entire text. Are we doing that with our students? And once we've pulled those things out, are we helping them build with that? Are we helping them build a mental model and understanding of what that text is saying? And then are we going beyond the text to help integrate that with, with knowledge that they, that they already know and revise knowledge that they already know? And, and so that, that I really like that definition from the RAND report. Um, to help us determine, to help us have a barometer of how our reading comprehension instruction, how effective it may or may not be. So that's my first takeaway. Big fan of the RAND model. The second takeaway I really took from this is with KWL charts. I've read a little bit about KWL charts in the, the literature, and I do know that they are an area that is under-researched. And full transparency, I haven't read the studies that Dr. Lupo and Dr. Hatton have done on KWL charts, but it's on my list. But to just kind of paint some broad strokes to go beyond just KWL charts is uh, so often when we're doing specific practices or using a specific type of graphic organizer or a type of instructional design, it really comes down to not so much the um, technique itself, but how that technique is being used. Uh, we had two different scholars who have investigated uh, KWL charts, and they came with with differing results that in one case they worked pretty well. In one case, they didn't work so well. And so for folks like me and you in the classroom, what, what, do, we, what, what do we do about that? How do we make sense of that? And I think it comes back to we are we using those things in a way that is, uh, you know, meeting that definition of reading comprehension instruction that I explained a, a second ago. Are we using it to extract details and build a mental model and help go beyond the text to integrate with what we already know and then revise it? And then I would also add, how are we using that KWL or the specific instructional technique within a model of gradual release? I'm a really, really big fan of gradual release. Uh, it is a bit of an art form that that it's not always going to be this, I do, we do, y'all do, you do. That's not really how it's talked about in the literature. It's talked about being very dynamic and very responsive. And so sometimes it's going to be a really short model that, that you provide and lots and lots and lots of, of the group doing it together. And then small groups or partners working on it together. It can be a very dynamic model. It doesn't have to be this static checkbox of steps. But if we're just throwing these graphic organizers or other techniques that are, are popular in, in instruction right now, we're just throwing them at students to have them do, then it's just independent practice, independent practice, independent practice. And um, as the teacher, you and I are the experts. And so um, obviously every student, they have a whole variety of assets that they bring to the table as well. But we are the ones that are taught in pedagogy, so we can leverage that knowledge from them much more effectively. And so that I think that goes specifically with 
KWL, are we thinking of using that with a gradual release model with lots of modeling, lots of practice together? And um, are we using it to extract details from the text, build a mental model, go beyond the text to integrate with what we already know, and then revise, revise what, we, what, what we've learned? That's all I've got for you today. Great big thanks again to my guests for taking time out of their lives to join us on the show to help teach us how we can teach reading better. And uh, we're at the cusp of a new school year. So I wish you the best of luck in your instructional context. And until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better. <laughs>